Yo, what up? This is DJ Odie. Big up. Soul Stealer Sessions. Concrete Jungle, New York. Digital Confusion, New York. North American drum bass in general. For real. Keep it locked. Incoming. We back. Rolling beats right now with the DJ7. This is Kinetics MC. Here to lock you in to episode 23 of the Soul Stealer Sessions. Today we got a wicked show for you, your host Moody Moore and DJ7 every week rolling out fresh beats on Saturday for Different Drums Radio. Starting off things is the DJ7 for the first 25 minutes or so on the intro mix. We're going to roll right into an interview with the true staple in the New York drum and bass and jungle scene and a pioneer who helped bring the sound stateside by the name of the DJ Odie, well known as Carlos Castillo. We're stoked to have him on the show. He seriously dropped some knowledge. We loved hearing the interview. Can't wait to roll it for y'all. After that, we're gonna roll right into the guest mix for this week's edition of the Soul Sealer Sessions. Headed up by the DJ Faden, repping 3D Productions and Fun and Bass out of VA. Loaded up with gems. Hope you feel the vibes today. Again, this is Kinetics MC. Right now, we're rolling in the mix with the DJ7. Let's go. This is AK-1200. You're listening to the Soul Stealer Sessions. Big up.
As always, shout outs to the different drums crew worldwide. A big up to Bluesic Beats, fam, and broadcasters. Out to Anita Magenta. Big up Nitro, Psy High. We're here to keep it moving every Saturday on different drums radio. You can catch the Soul Sealer sessions from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern, 7 to 9 p.m. GMT. That's the free game hours. Make sure to keep it locked. Top of things in the new year. Mm-hmm. 
Soul Stealer Sessions, make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes under the Soul Stealer Sessions, or you can check out our archives on SoundCloud, where we load up all of our past episodes, mixes, guest mixes, 
and exclusive interviews for your ear. All of that's under the DJ Southern SoundCloud, where you can check out his website, harbinger-industries.net, for all the links. Let's keep the sound rolling. DC homies, what's going on? This is MC Track, and right now you're tuned into the Soul Stealer Sessions with Moody Moore and DJ7 live in the mix. on the intro we're gonna keep the show moving here and get right into the interview with the one DJ Odie all the way from New York came and put down a sick one to represent with the Soul Stealer Sessions and we much appreciate that so right here here's the history lesson we're gonna roll right into it 
keep it locked, all listeners. This is the DJ Odie coming in on the Soul Stealer Session. This is DJ Seven with the Soul Stealer Sessions, and on this week's Epic Chat Time, I'm sitting down with Carlos Odie Castillo. Many of you simply know him as DJ Odie. Carlos, how you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you, man? I'm all right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your time on this interview. You were a mainstay for the NASA parties back in 1992, before many kids even knew what the rave scene was. Uh, can you give some of our listeners a rough idea of what that time was like? Well, I have. Um, I can only speak to my own experience. I was really, really lucky when I discovered that the music that I enjoyed listening to was getting its own place in the world, so to speak. I grew up in New York City listening to radio stations like 89.1, which was WNYU. There was a show on there on Thursday nights called Club 89 that was DJed by this guy named Chris Cullen. And he had a sponsorship from one of the local record stores called Discorama, and they used to give him all of the most upfront promos. So I would hear all these records by LFO and Renegade Soundwave and the Bones Breaks records that were coming out of Brooklyn on fourth floor, uh, Big Up Frankie Bones. And wow, Randy. amazing. And it was, it became its own genre. Techno became a thing, and I just chased what I thought was breakbeat techno, which when I, dis- when I got out of high school and I discovered NASA by discovering Storm Rave first, I was lucky to be at some of the early Storm Raves in, the, in 1992, 1993. Um, wow. I saw flyers for NASA, I got involved, and at the time it was really DIY. There were no rules. Candy Kids were there, but it wasn't a thing. It was just we were trying to. Wow, and I can actually say we because I am part of this generation. Strangely enough, um, we were trying to recapture something that we felt was missing from club culture with doormen and you know that. I'm greater than you attitude. Nobody was bigger than anybody else. It was, you know, to quote Heather Hart's magazine at the time, she used to do a fanzine called We Were All Under One Sky. You know, Mm -hmm. it was all one room, one vibe. And NASA, being all ages, um, allowed a lot of the younger ones, like myself, I was 17 at the time, and even people younger than that, one of my really good friends, DJ Clear, um, he was 13 years old when he was There were definitely no limits around that time. That's epic. Yeah, there were no limits. There were no, it was however you wanted to express yourself in a genuine way, it was there. It was there for you to take. And we were very lucky that we had people like Scotto and DB, people like Soul Slinger who supported us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that we were able to find a lot of like minded individuals who. You know, it, 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 it sounds so like, it sounds so hedonistic to say it this way. And it sounds so like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but we were really creating something without even knowing that we were creating it. And I think that was the best part. I can respect and understand that. That's cool. Now, going back to NASA for a bit, the designs for those classic flyers were inspirational worldwide, especially the ones that spoofed brands. Who are you guys working with that time to put that stuff together? And how did the overall direction and themes for NASA parties even come together? DB used to work with a designer named Mike Zabo, uh, who designed under the name Zeta G. And him and, and DB was taking, uh, when DB came here from the UK, he left the UK at the height of the summer of 88, the summer of 89, the, the really like loved up time in, in London when the rave scene was being born in London and in Europe. Right. And he took his cues from that. So they would work together, except they would, they were spoofing the imagery that we had known so well as pop culture imagery here. I mean... 
you know, to to kind of sound intelligista or whatever, you know, you had these guys like Andy Warhol and like Keith Haring that were, you know, hugely influential on pop culture. And then we were coming up in the late 80s, early 90s, and they were taking their cues from that, you know, and it just made sense. It was, you know, now people would have called it street art or whatever, but back, back then it was just this is cool, let's do something with it. Or it's, here's a Transformers yeah. image, let's do something with that, you know? Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it was interesting. It was very chill. Um, as far as the concepts for the nights went, I think it was just whatever flyer worked out, you know? We only had a week, literally, they were designing the flyer for the following week that Monday, you know? And we were getting them, they were being printed by Friday to get dropped off at the club for us to hand, for us to take home when we left. I was part of the flyer team at that point. That's how I came up through the organization. Uh-huh. And then by, you know, we had to have 20,000 of these things on the streets by that weekend. Wow. Wow. Now that's it was, as as DIY as it, as it was, it was also the energy that we all had and we cared so much about this space and about this feeling and this this thing that we were creating that, you know, a bunch of crazy high school kids could get together and with a little bit of leadership were able to blanket the city over the course of a weekend with thousands of flyers and really get the word out. Right on. Digital Confusion, the crew you had in New York City, started its roots back in the early 90s around the same time. And how did that alliance with uh, Concrete Jungle come together around that time? And Well, uh, Digital Confusion was a crew that me and my best friend Elf started up um, in my bedroom, literally. We grew up admiring the Zulu Nation and wanting to be b-boys and wanting to be a part of that but obviously we were a little too late for the hip-hop movement but we grew up children of that mm-hmm. and when we discovered the rave scene there were other kids like us there were Latin kids and black kids that were on the outskirts of what our neighborhood cultures saw as popular you know gotcha. and, Insert, insert the hip-hop ideas at that point. Mm-hmm. We were a little bit beyond that, and we were a little bit, we, you know, we were kids that got out of our neighborhood, and we were kids that explored the city, and when Elf and I started going to NASA, I started going first, he started going a few weeks after me, um, it just made sense for us to gravitate towards these other individuals who were like us, and it just so happened that I went to junior high school with my boy IQ and mm-hmm. his older brother Odyssey. They had a set of Tech 1200s. I didn't have decks at that point. So I would get records and I would practice at their house. So they became they got became a part of the crew. And then you had DJ Jojo and FTL who yeah. were coming from then uh, they were coming from Brooklyn. They were coming from Sheepshead Bay with our with another one of their friends Lou and his sister Lucy. Lou became our graphic designer. Lucy was one of the dancers. Like we all just kind of clicked and we were all we were those kids, to be completely honest with you, and to pull no punches, we were those kids that we loved the whole rave peace unity ideal, but if you bumped us a couple more times, we were probably going to start some shit. <laughs> okay. You know? I like and that's that. Not to, and that's not to be meant in any sort of hooliganism kind of way. It was just that we understood that, hey, you know, you got to carry yourself a certain way when you're on, when you're out. And yeah. we wanted to exemplify those ideals but at the same time you had you know we were coming from all over the city we were coming from jersey we were coming from we had we had crew members from jersey we had crew members from upstate and yonkers we had crew members from long island from all over the place because we were all kind of the same at heart you know yeah. we just have a good time right on. right on so the concrete jungle connection came up 
when NASA closed in 1993, breakbeat culture was just starting to get its baby steps. And Trace had played, I got the chance to play at NASA a couple of times. I'm on one flyer, but I played more than once. Um, Trace had played once. Alternate had done live PAs. I mean, we're talking some major names had come through and influenced the sound. And you had records like... Um, you had records like Lord of the Null Lines, was wow. heard for the first time. We heard Renegade. Um, we heard Terrorist, you know, Renegade yep. Terrorist. Yep. First time. Some of the early Moving Shadow, the, yep. the, the suburban bass, the Moving Shadow, uh, the, excuse me, the reinforced stuff like um, Journey from the Light and mm -hmm. moving into, you know, even, even going back to earlier stuff like that, like the Bouncer and, you know, the Prodigy, the early Prodigy records and early Formation records Damn. like that. Formation and M Project and F Project and all the Tango records, like all this stuff was just starting to happen. Mm -hmm. And then NASA closed and there was nothing. So, fast forward to the summer of 93, me and my crew, um, my mom, one of my mom's friends happened to have a van. Another friend of ours happened to have a generator. We happened to have a couple of bass speakers and some tops. A friend of mine happened to have some turntables and there was this handball court up on the Upper West Side on 157th Street underneath the West Side Highway. Um, it was known as a spot where the cops couldn't get to because there was a giant gate that would get locked every night by the Parks Department so the cops couldn't drive back there. But, uh, you know, 10 or 20 crazy kids could carry speakers and stuff down these steps and set up. Wow. And it was, so we decided to throw that party called Defying the Tribes in 90, I want to say late 93. Mm-hmm. Summer, late summer 93, and that kind of set the tone for a lot of people as to what became Concrete Jungle and became the New York City jungle scene, jungle drum and bass scene. So that first party, we had Jason Jinx play, we had Soul Singer play, mm -hmm. we had Carl K and Chaos play um, from down in Philly. Yeah. Tried to grab people that were doing what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you fast forward a little bit further to 94 and Lion, Mac and Delmar and, uh, and Cassine, among a few others. I, I, and, you know, there were other original residents. I was not one of the original residents of Concrete mm -hmm. Jungle. Um, Mac starts doing Concrete Jungle. Mac's pedigree is untouchable. The man has been a part of nightlife culture in New York City since the late 70s early 80s he wow. was the door guy he was the door guy at giant step he was the door guy at the world before that he was you know he used to work promotions for labels like he's so well connected his wife kathy um she prior to dating mac was uh she had a, she was dating a guy called gerald she was a part wow. of she was part of the post-punk scene as, as well as mac was i mean we're talking about people with heavy pedigrees here with crazy CVs and he got into the music and one night, you know, we see a flyer pop up for this thing at 205 Club, Concrete Jungle, you know, mm -hmm. every Monday night and we went down and the next thing you know, it's the next Monday and the next Monday and the next Monday and we were there. We were part of that original generation, uh, my crew at least was, and then TC Islam comes on board with, you know, Zulu Nation. Yep. The hip step thing happens, and there's a whole long story behind that, but it was just, once again, right place, right time, like-minded individuals whose energy clicked. Yeah. And 
eventually Concrete Jungle became the longest running jungle drum and bass line in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. I mean, I'm just proud to say that uh, I played there for my birthday this past year. So, you know, that was a nice touch. But, uh, you know, hearing the pedigree that you explained right there, that uh, really, really, um, you know, puts it into perspective that, uh, you know, I wasn't even fully aware of. So thanks. I mean, you gotta, you gotta realize as far as Matt goes, this guy's given so many opportunities to people that have gone on to become major players, not just in dance music culture, but in music culture in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, Giant Step, for God's sakes, you know, Giles Peterson, like, DJ Smash, like, so many guys that have gone on to become, to discover the next generation, and then the generation after that. Yeah, yeah. True, true mentors in the scene, and then some. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah. he's, you know, a very mild-mannered, fifty-something-year-old guy. He's got two kids. You know, his his uh, his oldest is in her teens at this point, and he's a school teacher. <laughs> like by mentorship day. at its core, though, it's beautiful to see that. You know, it's really yeah. cool to see that living uh, as an embodiment. That's yeah, cool. for sure. But you'd release some stuff back then on budding labels like Liquid Sky. What was that like? It was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> I I got hit by a car when I was a kid. So when I turned 18, I got a hold of my settlement money. And at the time, my boy IQ was making beats. He would, you know, he had a, a Roland 727 and a little a little Roland, uh, not Roland, a Casio SK1 sampler. Mm -hmm. And we would make these little beats and stuff. And he got me into that. It turns out that my uncle, um, my late uncle, lived in an apartment building on the Upper West Side. And on the first floor was this guy named T.K. Mendez, and he is a studio genius. He's gone on to build, he helped build 36 Chambers for Wu-Tang. He's wow. gone on to build recording studios in Jamaica for major recording artists. He's built studios in Puerto Rico for the, the entire reggaeton community. And he lived in my uncle's, on the first floor in my uncle's building. So when my uncle found out I was doing something with the music stuff, he was like, hey, you should meet T.K. Mm -hmm. I met T.K., and T.K. gave me the opportunity to intern at one of his studios called The Shack that was being built at that point. Yeah. So of course I bring IQ along because Q's like heavily into the hip hop thing and making beats. And it just so happened that the shack was around the corner from my apartment in, on 125th street. So we wow. ended up being their studio rats, being their interns. Wow. That's a perfect and, setup. Yes. And that's how we learned about, you know, samplers and production and recording just by being their studio bitches basically. <laughs> so I got, I came into that money and I went out and bought an SB 1200 and bought decks and bought sound and blah, blah, blah. And then my mom and I lost our apartment. <laughs> oh, man. So I had to move somewhere. So I ended up moving in Brooklyn with Jojo and we lived in this rave cave apartment in Williamsburg <laughs> for, I want to say 94, 95 mm -hmm. ish. And while we were there, we just started banging away at beats and tripping balls and banging away at beats and <laughs> banging away at beats and and it was it it is what it is you know and that's so someone in our crew i'm not going to say who uh was a weed dealer and he sold weed to soul slinger we were always you know liquid sky kids like literally the movie kids was written around that group of people not just the skater kids that were in the movie but us as well I yeah mean, it's some of like us it. Yeah, some of us are prominently featured in the film, you know, as extras, but still featured. <laughs> no, it's still <laughs> wicked. That's history. That's awesome. Yeah, so from us hanging out at Liquid Sky, we would play our beat tapes, and, you know, I'd sell my mixtapes there, and then they would pay, they'd pay me for my mixtapes. I'd go buy records. It just turned into a very self-sustaining thing. 
And one night when we're hanging out in the store after hours smoking weed, I don't smoke weed, but my crew does or did or does or whatever. <laughs> um, Soul Singer's like, I've got this label and he was running it with this guy named Reese uh, who passed away several years ago. Um, RIP Reese, big up. Um, and they had this label they were starting and they were like, and it just so happened that the guy that ran Sour Records in the UK was one of their, was partnering up with them. So they came to us with this idea of you guys are coming up, you guys are a crew, we want to put your music out. And we were like, okay, nice. <laughs> screw it. And what they said to us was that they were going to buy us an Akai S2000 sampler, which was, they were going to buy us this top of the line sampler. Yeah. And that was going to be our down payment. They were going to put us in a studio and that, and then we were going to produce for them. Mm -hmm. So we started throwing tunes together. Something happened where the project fell through, but we had these tunes and Carlos had already started putting out the Jungle Sky stuff, um, at which point it was like, okay, well, you already have this stuff and you want to put our music out and we want to put music out, so here, take it. <laughs> All right. So that first EP that I did, or the first releases that I did on one of the, I think it was This Is Jungle Sky Volume 2 or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I remember that. Literally, the, the tune Anthem, I put together like two weeks before and I forgot to put a bass line on it. <laughs> <laughs> holy crap yeah but it happened and then uh i became friends with that side and he did naughty ride for another label that um eric silver who went on to do who went on to work with palm pictures mm -hmm. and, and helped diesel boy run his label yeah uh you know human and all that stuff he was doing a project when he was in grad school at nyu and that's how naughty ride happened when naughty ride got released uh, Jesse Datsai put made sure that he could release it on vinyl with another label if he wanted to. Wow! So then it got taken. We were playing it. I got. I was playing in concrete quite a lot. Jesse was hooking me up with his stuff, his demos. He would literally play them for me in an MP3 in an MP. Uh, what was that the Mazda MPV like a minivan? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I remember those. Yep. We would be <laughs> sitting in a minivan and he'd be playing me these tunes and I was yelling, "I really like that! I really like that!" Then he showed me Naughty Ride, and I was like, this is fucking awesome. You guys need to do something with this. Um, it eventually got around to Carlos, and they asked me to do a remix. So on the original 12-inch, I feel really shitty about this, but on the original Naughty Ride 12-inch, there's three cuts. One mm -hmm. whole side is my, t is my remix because my bass, the bass I used, I used a re-space, and it was so loud that they couldn't cut it. At a, they couldn't cut it into a smaller space because yeah. the needle just kept on popping out. <laughs> the cutting head kept growing up. So they gave me one whole side, and then the original version is on the the A side. I'm I'm technically the B side, but because I take up the whole side, it's weird. And uh, and that's how the Liquid Sky stuff started to happen. And then they started to explode from there with other projects with other producers. But it was really, like I said, it was really just accidental. <laughs> yeah, literally, and then some. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, that's really cool. You know right. what's funny, man? Hearing, hearing it, like, I don't tell these stories a lot, so hearing me tell these stories and how, like, accidental yet majorly influential they are. Yeah, so, it's serendipitously so accidental weird. throughout, you know? In a recent chat with AK-1200, uh, he ended up uh, pontificating about how difficult it is these days to survive in a scene where D&B party attendance is waning in a lot of cities. Uh, based on your own experiences, what else would you uh, have to add on to this point? Well, I mean, I gotta, I gotta say, Dave AK and I go back a really, really long time. We were one of 
back in the original, after NASA closed in the original early 90s days, there was a handful of us. And if we, you know, I, I attribute a lot of this to just the sheer size of this country. Um, you know, there was two or three people in Chicago. There was two or three people in the Philly, Pittsburgh, and like the Pennsylvania area. There was two or three people in D.C. There were two or three people in Boston, two or three people in New York. Gotcha. But because of the sheer size of the country, we couldn't really communicate with each other. There was no Internet. You know, you had to make long-distance phone calls, and it sucked. Yeah, coordination <laughs> so, was a beast then. You're right. Yeah, there was no coordination. But Dave A.K. and Jeffy down in Orlando, they did this thing with the suburban base crew where they brought out Dan Donnelly, Danny Brakes, Austin, uh, Austin Runtings, and a couple of the other uh, early sub-base guys and did this roller rink party in Orlando, Florida, and we all fucking traveled down there like a caravan of cars from all over the place went down there. Oh, dude, that's that amazing. First big, big things to happen. So I got to big them up for that. People awesome. don't realize how entrenched those guys are in this. So if it's not, if it's never said anywhere else, thank you to them. Oh, yeah. Um, but speaking, you know, speaking to what he was talking about, for me now, it's – I hate saying a labor of love because it's, it's, it is a part of – that's a part of it, but that's not the main part of it. I haven't done anything else for 25 years. All I've done is DJ, and I've seen it. Um, I've worked bullshit little day jobs here and there at Guitar Center or Sam Ash or you know, in restaurants and stuff like that because everybody knows food service workers and musicians go hand in hand. But ultimately, other than working at record stores, I've worked at record stores, I've worked at record labels, I've worked in distribution, and I've worked as a DJ, and the, that's my career. Gotcha. So for me, it's not that keeping, it wasn't so much that keeping a following or being able to maintain a lifestyle in a waning community is difficult. For me, it's just a matter of, you know, the Bible says seven, you know, seven fat years and seven lean years. And these are the lean years right now. You know, we, and we, but we as a community, I feel like allowed this to happen. You know, a lot of the people that when the, during the dubstep explosion post the, the post nine eleven dubstep explosion, as they say, or yeah. as I say, you know, a lot of us walked away. A lot of us said, well, we can't make money flying out anywhere anymore. I've got to do my thing. I've got to figure out what to do. And we started making Baseline House. We started making Dubstep. We started making Brostep. We started making Electro. We start we. Yeah, you're right. And we allowed this to happen. If we, as a community, would have said, I really want to keep doing this. And sold ourselves a little bit better. Or controlled the way that the community, the way that the scene developed at that point, you know, and we didn't, we genuinely didn't do that. We allowed the major corporations like Clear Channel, like Live Nation, like SFX to come in and start dictating the way that shows were thrown. Yeah, that's true. And when that happened, that means that the, because of the bottom line, the lowest common denominator was going to get the play. And, you know, we all see what happened now. You know, we've got, as a, whereas, whereas the scene used to be the outcasts that, want, that found a safe place where we could listen to what we wanted to listen to, now it's those same, you know, jockey bro-y kids and their pretty, pretty girlfriends and, you know, trying to be the next Kardashian girls that are taking over. And it sucks. Yeah, I could definitely, uh, I could definitely agree with that a hundred percent. But to to get a little bit more specific for a quick second, when it comes to the drum and bass community, 
we are so spread out in America and we are so far apart that even with the internet, it's really, really difficult for us to maintain any sort of lines of communication where we can say to each other, hey, let's do flight shares or hey, let's do, you know, let's focus our energies on one big show per market or per time zone even you know what I mean yeah if and unfortunately when you've got major companies like SFX like EDC that can come in and spend millions of dollars on production that or even you know when companies like SFX buy the mid-level guys and allow them to and make them promote this you know insert Port artist top 10 here yeah of the of the month you know, whoever that may be, with all the promotion money they have behind it, it's near impossible for people like Torque in Orlando, for example, to exist because the 40 or 50 people that might go out to a good drum and bass show because they kind of like it are going to automatically default to what's being thrown in their face. And it dilutes the community, it dilutes the scene, and that might be the breaking point for an organization like Torque or Concrete Jungle or, or so many other people where if they don't get that extra five or ten people, they can't afford to do another show. Yeah. You know, and then you've got agents that are used to getting the festival money for their talent saying, oh, you want to get at Russian Optical? Okay, that's 20 grand. Who can afford 20 grand? Who can afford 10? Who can afford five grand on a Thursday? You know what I mean? You've got to be doing really, really well in your personal life to be able to back that up because God forbid it snows, it rains, there's a flight issue. God forbid anything happens. You got one chance. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The volatility is still incredible these days. And yeah, it hasn't and with, changed a bit. And with America being as large it is, as it is, it's not like we can make that up. You know, It's not like it used to be where, you know, unfortunately, because of the instantaneousness of the internet, I guess is the best way for me to put it. Mm -hmm. It's really unfortunate that people are, you know, the, the next generation is so used to going two clicks and finding what they want instead of driving 200 miles to have an experience. Yeah, that's you know? and true. that's that's what really hits a lot of us in the, you know, in the in the soul and in the pocket, you know? It's true. It's the deluge of, of options. It seems to paralyze people at some point, you know, from regional or, you know, just certain areas. Uh, at some point, you're right. People just kind of throw in the towel and they won't seek out the the quality events as much as they would back in the day. I mean, even myself, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I was a party kid first. I, I mean, I was a DJ from when I was nine years old, but I was a party kid in the rave scene first, and I still go to shows. And when I go out, I make sure I have enough money to get in. I don't try to, you know, throw my balls around like, oh my god, I'm Odie, whatever. Because it, <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. If, if I'm not prepared to pay the money to go to a party, I shouldn't be going to that party. Amen to that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because it's the support factor. But ultimately, like, you know, I guess the point that I'm making is that, like. I'm guilty of it too. I'm 40 years old. I'm I'm engaged. I have a stepdaughter who I love hanging out with. She's awesome, and she's starting to ask me to play, you know, Wilkinson records for her and stuff. That's and awesome, man. Cool. Congrats. She's and she's six. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like I would rather not be in. I would rather not go to one of these big, big festival things because Andy C's playing or Ed Rush is playing. If I've got to be around five thousand. EDM kids. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> you know, the perspective has changed full circle. You know, and since it, all this yeah, time. you're right, man. It really has, and it's one of those things where, like, no offense to those kids, I'm sure that they're having 
the greatest experience of their lives right now. But at the same time, there's so many of them that are just doing it because they can get laid or they can wear their Where's Molly shirts or they can go to Hot Topic and buy their little Indian headdresses, which, you know. Yeah. And it's it crushes just me. shitty. Yeah, know? it is. It's crushing. It is. <laughs> I, I as, a, as, a, as an adult, you know, I, I, it, it's really weird hearing me think and say this, but as an adult, I feel like it's disingenuous. I feel like these kids are cookie cutter now. And it's just one of those, you know, I sound really like old man, get off my lawn. No, no, no. I think it's pretty universal. A lot of us, uh, a lot of us old schoolers kind of have come to the same view. I think it's just a, a universal understanding of just not only the grass being greener in a certain sense, but just seeing like things like the loss of mentorship, you know, too much, too much getting in too fast, too many people not really seeing the full ropes or the extent of what the culture means. It causes this degradation. And we're, we're aware of that because you've yeah. got the index. You've seen it from the beginning. Yeah. And there's, and there's not a lot we can do about it, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, yeah, it takes a village, blah, 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 blah. But when you're getting thousands of dollars, like literally thousands and thousands of dollars are being thrown at this and it's, and those thousands of dollars are promoting the wrong ideals of the culture. It's near impossible for a small group of like-minded individuals to fight it. I mean, it's happened. You can, you saw it happen in rock and roll. I mean, shit, you see it happen in Burning Man now. Yeah, yeah. oh my gosh, absolutely. I saw that when I saw it in 2011. That's absolutely 100% true. Yeah, and when you've got, you, it's really, really hard to fight a steamroller, you know? And it, and that's what they're doing right now. They're steamrolling it until they can squeeze every last penny out of it. They've stopped caring about the quality of the music. They've stopped caring about the quality of the, you know, yeah, the experience is better, but, but is the experience really better you know yeah i know what you mean i mean the, the the impression i had when i when i had around that time was it's like an aruberos it's watching a snake eat its own tail yeah you know and, and that kind of thing is there it's just like what they said about pop eating itself it's that yep. whole thing metastasizing into all these other subgenres and all these other modern incarnations of the same form of we're trying but it's not genuine enough it's not we're authentic enough yeah i completely agree yeah so yeah what, if anything, do you think can be done to the U.S. drum and bass scene to make it better today as quickly as possible? Right now, as quickly as possible, I would say the smaller the better. I would say I had an idea, and I, and I got this idea from looking at my history growing up. For me, growing up in my generation, growing up beneath the, the, house, the original house music generation, for example, mm -hmm. people that came from the warehouse, people that came from the Paradise Garage, people that came from Ministry of Sound, people that came from, um, uh, people that came from, I mean, shit, Paradox even. And we were there. I mean, we were partying in the Paradox in yep. the first year of its incarnation, but it was still based on a feeling and an idea that came from something way earlier, you know? Um, the thing about it was it was, it was not promoted. It was each one teach one. It was, you're going to like this. I'm bringing you to the party next week. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yep. And it started really, really small. I mean, people like, you know, Wayne Davis, thank you very much, sir, for opening Paradox. But like yes, people, yes. Davis, they came from that, house, from that house party vibe. They came from a good sound system, a red light, and a feeling in a basement in Baltimore somewhere. They came from the Paradise Garage, which was, you know, 5,000 counterculture gay men who were discovering an entirely new form of life and an entirely new sound of music, which then went on to inspire Ministry of Sound, which then went on to inspire 
the rave scene. You know what I'm saying? Like, yep. and it all comes from very small, tight knit cultures. So if I if there was a way for me to fix it right now, I would say find a basement, put in a good sound system, invite your ten best friends. Next time, have them invite their ten best friends. And let it grow organically. If they want to come back, cool. If not, no big deal. Keep fighting the good fight because ultimately we're always going to want to listen to this music. Agreed. Yeah, I love that I, uh, that approach. It's a grassroots started all over again like it was. And you know. we and hopefully, you know, to, to kind of wrap up the idea, hopefully remember what we already know happened. Remember and recognize those stopgaps where things branched off the wrong way realize what we realize where we let go and where we went wrong and don't let it happen this time you know it's 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 our scene it's our music we north american drum and bass i mean western hemisphere drum and bass at this point is powerful enough with solid promoters you know you've got people like you've got all those denver kids are so good like recon is badass Uh you've got People like David Portwood out there, who's so good with his night. You've got respect yep. in LA. You've got a huge community in LA that's been built that way. You know, it just so happens that there's millions of dollars in LA and that the big crews are in LA. So you've got, so they end up getting a stage, but it's still just that. That's just what it is. It's a stage. Right. Like have a festival of our own. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got people like Smart Bar in Chicago. You've got people like the MIA crew out of Chicago, you've got Concrete Jungle, you've got the New England Junglists, you've got Too Tough, you know, Too Tough in D.C. was doing their thing for years. You've got, you know, and now there's a whole club, U Street Music Hall, yeah. that's run by the guys that used to run Sunday sessions. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, And this is, these are opportunities. These are ways where we as a community can get back to what we really wanted in the first place, which was to hear this music on good sound systems with good people around us. You know, it's not always about the bottom line. Amen. Yeah. I'll take that as the final word on that. These days now you're, you're a native in North Carolina. How did the transition from there to, uh, from New York, uh, happen for you? Well, I'm actually in Cincinnati, Ohio now. Oh, okay. (laughs) But basically I moved to Charlotte because I fucked up my life. And I was 36 years old. I had just, um, I had, my grandfather had passed away. My uncle had passed away. And I, you know, I, living in New York City, much like living in a lot of other urban cities, big cities, if you're not doing well, if you're not doing extremely well, it's hard for you to get up past where you're at. Yeah, I feel you. All hustling. You're always at this one level. Mm-hmm. And I, that's where I was. You know, I was surviving in New York. Which in, and from traveling my you know my whole career, surviving in New York is thriving in other places. Yes, amen to that. <laughs> I so I left New York. I moved down to Charlotte. I had a couple of really good friends who gave me the opportunity to stay for a couple of weeks, and I liked it. So I moved down there and threw a couple of shows that failed and burned a couple of bridges from acting like an asshole. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized I didn't go down there to be a promoter. I went down there to get my shit together. So I disappeared for a couple of years, got my shit together as best I could. And I met a girl who I knew from my travels over the years. We reconnected and she's in Cincy. So now I, because I can do my career, I can do my job from anywhere with an airport. Right. I was like, Hey, if we're going to take this thing seriously, I'm going to move to Cincy the same way I moved to Charlotte. And, I moved to Cincy and now I'm here. <laughs> nice, man. Congrats. That's great. 
Thank you. That's really good, man. Well, I mean, it's it's been really refreshing to hear such a such candor, especially in this exchange. Uh, it seems like you definitely have come full circle a lot, uh, not only in uh, you know how you feel and and, and how you expand on everything, but just you know it's it's refreshing and, and it's a real treat. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. thank you guys. Um, um, thanks for your time. Uh, any yeah. other final shout outs you'd like to give before we wrap uh, things up? I want to big up everybody that listens to the music, everybody that supports the music, all the bedroom producers, no matter what, you know, no matter what you're doing, keep making the music that you hear in your head and getting it out there because someone's going to like it. And that one person is going to show it to other people. And then a scene grows, you know, um, I just got to say thanks to you guys for, for having me up. And I guess that's about it. Thank you. Right to I want to thank the Academy. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no, but in, awesome. but in all seriousness, um, in all seriousness, I guess you know. In closing, the only thing I'd really like to say is just the music's been here for 25 years. It's going to be here forever. Like music doesn't go away, and it's up to us whether we want to let it, whether we want to take control again, or whether we want to let things happen. And I am trying to do my best with you know my crew and with being involved with dnbvault.com, the yep. online magazine. You know, there's a lot of really good stuff happening. So now's not the time for people to walk away. Don't get disheartened. Don't get upset. Like, I get it. If you've lost a bunch of money throwing shows, I get it. Maybe try throwing a house party instead of a show, you know? But don't lose don't lose the faith, man. Like, don't be that guy. <laughs> Wise words, sir. Wise words. Thank you. Thank you again. No Once again, big shouts and massive respect to the DJ Odie for the wicked interview. And big up the DJ Seven, as always, for putting it on. History session in the making. Running back to the mix. We're going to keep you locked. This is episode 23 of the Soul Stealer Sessions. And we're going to be rolling in right now with the DJ Faden, holding down the guest mix. Rapid 3D Productions and Fun and Bass. Let's keep it moving now.
hypercube. up to the front and bass crew holding down the drum and bass and VA over at Revolution in Centerville. Lodging up the child's play, a big update to drop, and all the rest of the crew putting it down every week.
One time now fading in the mixture. Rolling it out with the DJ Faden, giving up big shouts to the different drums, massive. We hold in tight on the guest mix, episode 23 of the Soul Stealer Sessions.
Rolling shots with the 3D Productions crew. Repping DC drum and bass with a passion. Holding down the scene in the city proper. Looking forward to massive things in 2016.
Ed Rush, and you're listening to the Soul Steelers session. Rinsing out DC style. Check it out, Tom and Bass. Sick, man!
shout out to Shay. And once again, after the front and bass crew. Lodging up the DJ Faden, rolling deep in the mix.
Big ups to everyone who locks in with us on the Soul Sealer sessions every week. Keeping the sounds fresh, featuring some of the dopest and local talent worldwide for all Junglist fam. Right now, bringing heat in the mix is the DJ Faden. Original sounds out of VA. from the DJ Faden, make sure to drop into his SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Faden,
Check out the 3D Productions crew online by checking out their Facebook fan page or hit up their website, 3dproductions.club for up-to-date information on all the events and parties they're throwing in the DMV as they're bringing some heat to 2016.
our sun lies a distant outpost, a technologically perfect world where mistakes are impossible, because the impossible is unthinkable. Soul Stealer Sessions. This is Somorphics. Keep it locked.
DJ Marky from Indigram Recordings and you listen to So Stila Sessions.
As we settle down, we want to give a huge shout out once again to the DJ Odie for blessing us with the interview today for the show on episode 23 of the Soul Stima Sessions. I'm going to keep it going with the shout out for the DJ Faden on holding down the guest mix for us this week. You know we always keep it live here at the Soul Stealer Sessions. Jumping into next week, we're going to have some fresh business for you. So check us out on different drums, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern, 7 to 9 GMT, next Saturday and every Saturday. Back with your hosts, the DJ7 and Moody Moore, myself, Kinetics MC. One time to all of our listeners and out to everyone who locked in with us today. Until next week. Keep it live, Soul Stealer Sessions in the mix.